The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Have you ever overheard a conversation that goes something like this? Hearing from someone we know, Firmus, that you have rejected a fleshless diet and have returned again to animal food? At first, I didn't believe it. When I considered how temperate you are and how reverent, but when other people confirmed it, it seemed that in the interest of our friendship, I really needed to disclose your errors. Well. The language may sound a little bit archaic, and that's because it is. This was actually written in the 3rd century A.D. by a Neoplatonic philosopher named Porphyry. Have you had that experience (laughs) trying to talk one of your ex-vegan friends into getting back on the path? I was talking with Dr. Neil Barnard about that, and he said, you know, It's not really so terrible when people fall off the wagon. It's like smoking. It takes people nine times on average to stop smoking before it sticks. Well, here at the Main Street Vegan Program, we are all about making the vegan lifestyle so much fun, so delicious, so important, and such an adventure that everybody wants to join in, stay in, and thrive doing that. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Victoria Moran, the host of this program. After the break, I'll be introducing to you someone who needs no introduction, and that is Nathan Runkle, the founder of Mercy for Animals. And right now, I'm going to be introducing to you someone who also needs no introduction, and that is Vegan Richa. 
I know that you read her first book, uh, Vegan Riches Indian Kitchen, major bestseller, and now she's coming out with Vegan Riches Everyday Kitchen. In the second book, she applies her culinary school skills to international comfort foods, including a wealth of flavor-packed, awesome sauces and mix and match ideas to inspire you to create stunning meal combinations. Richa creates flavorful vegan recipes inspired by her Indian upbringing, and many of these are gluten-free, soy-free, and oil-free. Welcome, Richa. Hey, Victoria. It's a pleasure to have you. Congratulations on the book, which is beautiful and delicious. So tell us a little bit of your background. What got you started? Um, I was basically sitting at home after uh, surgery and I couldn't go back to my work. So I started cooking and baking breads and blogging. Uh, At that time, I wasn't vegan, but because of blogging, uh, I also adopted uh, Chewy around the same time. So all of that kind of came together. I was also started reading some vegan blogs and the connections just started happening. And one day I was like, I'm just going to stop eating all the meat and chicken. And I kept reading and then I eliminated eggs and dairy. And one day I told my husband, we're basically going vegan. And he was like, okay. (laughs) And then the blogging continued. Yeah. (laughs) So after a while as well. So that was really good. Oh, that's a wonderful thing. This can be a very positive contagion. So when did you start blogging? Uh, I think around 2009, 2010. I wasn't like regularly blogging. Just it was, you know, one of those earlier blogs when you take photos with your phone uh, in really bad light. And uh, just it was like a collection of things I was making. So I would blog once a month or sometimes four times a month and things like that. I think I got more into it uh, in 2011, 2012. So what do you think is the key to a really successful food blog? Heaven knows you have one. (laughs) If I could have figured it out, (laughs) I'd be, (laughs) yeah. Um, I think it's, it's just knowing your audience and knowing your own uh, food and creativity. So I kind of um, initially used to just make stuff that I really loved. Uh, then I started listening to my audience on the type of food they liked more and the type of recipes they tried more. So I started including those recipes as well and also altering my recipes to be a bit more simpler and easier. Like Indian food can be really uh, complex at times. So I started applying that to Indian food or any other uh, you know, more complex cuisine I tried. So I started doing that and that kind of made people more interested in the recipes. They would try the easier recipes, the food would come out really good and they would come back and keep trying more recipes and more complex ones. And then uh, those came out really well and then they just stuck with me. (laughs) You're a good person to stick with. And um, your first book, as we said, just uh, blew the lid off in, in terms of cookbook sales, which is so exciting. Was this something that you had always thought about? Did you dream of being a cookbook author as a little girl? <laughs> no, <laughs> I had no. Um, yeah, that was never in my, uh, like, you know, all the kid, the girl plans that you have that, okay, I'm going to do this or that. Uh, I might have thought of writing like a fiction 
book or something, but never a cookbook. Well, I'm glad you went to cookbooks. So tell me about the difference between the second book and the first one, in your opinion. So the first one was um, is basically an Indian vegan cookbook. It's um, very traditional Indian as well as some fusion Indian food. So you can look at it as an Indian vegan or vegan Indian book. And this one is more like the blog in terms of the uh, it's basically lot many cuisines and different kinds of meals. Um, I do apply similar like deep flavoring techniques that I know from Indian food to everything, pretty much all of my recipes. So they do tend to have, you know, a little more spices and herbs than a regular recipe, but uh, it, they cover a lot of different uh, types of food and different cuisines of food. So the book is kind of divided into um, like, what were they thinking? Yeah, so the, the kind, the form of food as uh, like if you want to eat burgers, pizzas, or, or casseroles, or if you are looking for a certain kind of flavors. So if you're into Thai food, then there's the first chapter, which is PBNC. It's peanut butter and coconut, and then there's some Indian, Ethiopian in the masala chapter. The sweet and sour buffalo and firecracker, which is really tangy and hot food. So there's something for everybody and there are tons of meals in the book. And then there's one big chapter on desserts. Aha. (laughs) I think you have really taken a step toward peace on earth because it used to be that people had the idea, well, I cook the kind of food I understand. I cook what my mother cooked. And if I want something exotic, then I have to go out to a restaurant. And you're basically saying just because some of these ingredients are something you haven't used all your life it doesn't mean that that these foods from other cultures have to be intimidating. That's true. Uh, People do tend to try the stuff that they know before. They tend to experiment, but that's my... uh, I always tell people to try and experiment and try the the spices, the herbs that I'm using. I do provide substitutes whenever possible, but the main spices and herbs are something you do want to try to get the real flavor profile. Oh, for the flavor and the antioxidants. Ever since I read Dr. Greger's How Not to Die, I consider my spice chest a, a sort of medicine cabinet. I mean, a yeah. day does not go by without turmeric and curry powder and cinnamon. <laughs> so tell us some of these Indian flavor building tips. Um. Indian food is basically very, very vast. The cuisine has tons of sub-cuisines. So each of those sub-cuisines have different kinds of flavors and herbs that they use. So there's no one particular set to build up the flavor. Like the southern cuisine uses a lot more coconut, uh, black pepper, uh, mustard, and things like that. North Indian is a lot more cinnamon, nutmeg, cardamom, cumin. And they're used in various different ways. Like you use whole spices as well as in ground form or those whole spices are first toasted and then ground up later or they're just ground up beforehand and then toasted in oil or not in oil. Uh, So there are like various ways to build up the flavor. And like people ask me, how can there be different flavors with just the same set of spices? And there are very different flavors depending on where you use the spice, how you use it, and at what point in the recipe the spice is used. So there's... This is really, really much to explain in just a few um, sentences. It sounds like a a great YouTube series. (laughs) The Spices (laughs) from Vegan Rich's Kitchen. 
So what's your favorite yeah, dinner? So the book simplifies all of this really well. So the yeah, most, it does. Yeah, it, it, it really does. The book is terrific. So, so what are you liking for dinner these days? These days I've been, well, right now I don't want to cook anymore because I just finished the second book. <laughs> but when I was making the second book, I was a uh, lot into like lots of the pizzas that I created for the book were really interesting. So I was making pizzas a lot, a um, bunch of different burgers. Like there are some, uh, the Bharat chickpea burger has Bharat spice in it. It really makes it taste very meaty without having any kind of meat ingredients in it like you know any kind of substitute ingredients in it is just chickpeas and they taste really good so uh, all of those spices uh, i'm also liking burberry and everything so i just put lots of burberry in in my curry or um if i'm making a bowl so it's just you know with, with the lentils and things like that so i'm just using up all of the spices and sauces that i have from the book stored in my freezer mm-hmm. and i keep yeah, putting them in my dinner. Now, help me out. I'm not familiar with Burberry. Tell us what that is and where we get it. So there is a recipe for that in the book, uh, both the uh, paste as well as uh, the dry version. It's an Ethiopian spice blend. It's somewhat like uh, garam masala would be used in Indian food. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm doing, yeah, I'm, I have a couple of like pastes and sauces and spice blends in the book. So I have my own green curry, red curry, Burberry, Baharat spice, the Jamaican jerk seasoning, shawarma, and things like that. You can buy all of those outside as well to use in the recipes, but it's really good to make all of these at home because they stay really well. You can freeze them or the spices stay really well. And then it's just a matter of putting them uh, in whatever dinner you're making. Mm, and I love that idea. Anything you make yourself, it's almost like when a child helps with a meal and and then he or she will want to eat vegetables that they ordinarily don't care about. There's something about uh, excuse Add all me. Of the spice on the vegetables, and I read that. <laughs> so you mentioned pizzas. So can you talk a little bit about pizza? What's the secret of a really good vegan pizza? Well, I don't really follow making pizza like veganizing the already existing pizzas. I tend mm-hmm. to make up my own variations. So I have like the butter sauce pizza, which is the Indian butter sauce with some uh, baked tofu on top. Uh, there's a deep dish, which is which has lots of uh, roasted pepper. I have my own mozzarella recipe that you want that you can use on the pizzas. Uh, what other? Uh, the mushroom jalapeno pizza is really good because it's just caramelized mushrooms, and you really don't need any cheese on it. Just this, just the white sauce and the caramelized mushrooms and. It's really, really good. You don't really have to go by existing pizza, uh, you know, definitions. You can just create your own. You can literally put anything on the pe- on uh, a crust, and it should work. And that's pizza for me. Mm, sounds fantastic. So with all of the recipes available online, I mean, you can pretty much just type in vegan whatever and find recipes why are cookbooks important? Why should people buy your book? And I may steal this and say why people should buy my cookbook coming out in December. But where does a book come in? What makes cookbooks important? I guess it's like also personal preference that people like to cook from a printed paper book. Uh, the other thing is that everything is very organized. Uh, so you don't have to keep searching for things. Everything is linked up really well. Uh, there is sauces in the chapter already linked up to the main recipe and then you can just 
cook those at the same time or make ahead. Uh, there's also a, the way it is organized. There's a collection of similar flavors or the collection of similar form factor in terms of all the burgers together. So it's easier to search through it uh, compared to what's on the blog. It also gets tested very thoroughly. I had recipe testers make it a bunch of times and then there are substitutes listed depending on, uh, you know, all the allergy friendliness of the recipe. So all, the, all that together kind of makes the book a really good one to have. And there's, there's, uh, there are a few uh, usual recipes to, you know, for people who are just starting to cook vegan food, so something like a mac and cheese or a brownie, and then everything else is all uh, unique uh, and very different kind of uh, recipes that are in the book. So it's it's just really it's a really beautiful book also. You know, it is. Yeah. It, it, it's a dazzler. It, it really, you know, so often I think it's like Rocky too. You know, somebody does an amazing cookbook like Vegan Rich's Indian Kitchen, and then it's like, how are you going to follow that? Well, you have more than followed it. You have really done something splendid with this new one, and I do commend you. So as our time is running to a close, I just want to draw on something that you mentioned a moment ago when you were talking about somebody just starting out. What advice do you have for that brand new vegan cook? Uh, Just not be afraid of trying out new things and uh, season well, add more spices and more flavor and uh, just keep trying your hand at it. Like right now there are tons of different brands, which already offer a lot of substitute options. It makes it very easy to, you know, use those in your food before you figure out how to make them. So use those, add a lot more flavor to your food and uh, try multiple recipes. If you can't find the one recipe that worked for you, like try a different one by a different author Mm. and yeah, keep doing it. I think that people look at you as a, a successful cookbook author and recipe blogger and think you must spend your whole life cooking. My sense is that it's a little bit like these fabulous fashion people who, when you really see them, they pretty much wear black tights, a black skirt, and a black sweater. <laughs> so how much time do you spend cooking when you're not working on a cookbook? Uh, I do cook every day anyway for food because I the, the time I take a break and try to eat out after two days, I get really bothered by the kind of food I'm eating. So I do cook a lot at home. Uh, my husband cooks as well sometimes. So together we basically do cook a lot. But a lot of the time actually go the rest of the time goes in all of the blog work. As the blog is growing, there's a ton more stuff to keep it updated and maintained and all the editing, the photo editing. I started doing videos recently. So that takes up so much time uh, because I'm still learning. And the book work also needed a ton of editing and uh, all the, you know, administrative tasks. You, uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, so those take up a lot more time. And I'd rather spend that time in the kitchen uh, making more food and testing out more food and then taking uh, photos of those of that food. I mean, I like taking uh, I like the photography part as well. What I kind of am OK with is all the editing and everything. But I wish I could find somebody else to do it. <laughs> Oh, believe me, that that is the bane of my existence. So now I know who to call up when it's driving me crazy. I know this is called the information age, but I think it's really the overworking age. 
because we yeah. all do it, but at least we're doing it to try to make this world so much better. So, Richa, thank you so very much. Uh, we'll put all of Vegan Richa's information on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Her website is veganricha.com, Vegan Richa on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And on YouTube, it's Vegan Richa Recipes, the brand new book, Vegan Richa's Everyday Kitchen. Buy it, love it, use it every day. Thank you so much for your recipes and for your time on our program today. Thank you and for having me, Victoria. You, you're ever so welcome. And everybody else, stay with us. We are going to be talking with Nathan, Nathan Runkel, Mercy for Animals. programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one-time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. What got you started on your spiritual path? Minister and radio host Paul John Roach says his path began when he heard George Harrison of the Beatles talking about Hindu philosophy and meditation. Paul John writes about it in the current edition of Unity Magazine. And don't miss the interview with Eben Alexander, the neurologist whose near-death experience led him to write Proof of Heaven. It's all in the September-October edition of Unity Magazine. Go to unity.org and click on Publications. Did you know you can reach Unity's 24-7 prayer ministry online? You don't even have to give your name to know the prayers have begun for you or those you love. Someone has been praying around the clock at Silent Unity since 1890, and every request is taken into prayer for 30 days. Why not let us pray with you, too? To submit your prayer request to Silent Unity online, go to unity.org and click on prayer, or call 1-800-NOW-PRAY. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. 
Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. We're so happy to have you. For anybody who's just stumbled onto our program, I hope you'll find it a very positive stumble. Uh, I am Victoria Moran. Uh, MainStreetVegan.net is where I hang out, and I invite you to visit there and see all of the exciting things that we're doing and that can help you on your vegan transition or on your vegan path. This week on the blog at MainStreetVegan.net, we have a wonderful piece called Transitioning from Plant-Based to Vegan. This is the experience of a lovely yoga teacher in Connecticut. Her name is Holly Scotus. She spent some time with a spiritual teacher who really impressed upon her what reverence for life is all about. I hope you enjoy reading that, and I know you are going to enjoy the conversation coming up. Because it is with a young man who discovered what reverence for life is all about at a very young age. Nathan Runkle is founder and president of Mercy for Animals, the world's largest farm animal protection and vegan advocacy organization. Nathan founded MFA at age 15 after an animal abuse case in his local farming community in rural Ohio. He is the author of the brand new but already best-selling book, Mercy for Animals, One Man's Quest to Inspire Compassion and Improve the Lives of Farm Animals. And he does so much cool stuff. He started the world's first vegan music festival the Circle V, and he appeared alongside Miley Cyrus in the Advocate Magazine's Top 40 Under 40 list of people changing the world. Welcome, Nathan Runkle. Thanks so much for having me. What an honor. Well, it is amazing to have you. You are just such a force for good in the world. The book is absolutely beautiful, and I do want to say it was written with Gene Stone, who is kind of the unsung hero behind so much of the great work going on for animals and veganism today. So I do want to give a shout out to Jean. So, Nathan, you were 15. That's when people yeah. play video games. Why did you do something different? <laughs> I think I did play a few video games along the way as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I... I was I was born on a small farm in Ohio. I was essentially slated to become a fifth generation farmer, and I just had this natural affinity for animals. It, you know, all of my early childhood memories are with our dogs and cats, and um, I, I was able to see from a very young age the the world through the eyes of other creatures, and um, was able to relate to their pain and their suffering. And, uh, you know, as, as I got older, I, I really started to realize that there was no meaningful difference between 
animals that we consider pets and those that we consider food. So once I learned about factory farm practices when I was 11, um, I decided that I didn't want to pay someone else to abuse animals on my behalf. Uh, a few years later at 15, uh, there was an animal abuse case at my local high school, which illustrated to me that there needed to be an organization in our local farming community that would give a voice to animals that were being raised and, and killed for, for food. So, you know, I, to me, this is really a, a social justice issue. Um, I believe that animals um, are alike us, are like us in every way that matters. Um, they have the same spark for life. They um, can experiencing, experience joy and sadness and loneliness and frustration, but also love um, in the same way that we can. And they really are completely at our mercy. They are so weak and so, so vulnerable. And they suffer in such huge numbers at the hands of humans. So I, I think it's really a, a moral obligation to uh, speak up on their behalf. And, and for me, that has become a, a lifelong um, mission. How beautifully put. Now, I know a lot of young people, a lot of teenagers and preteens become vegetarian, become vegan, but you started an organization. What was going on in your mind when you put this all into motion? Well, I saw an injustice, and um, I, I wanted to do everything that I could to to, to write that. Um, uh, you know, the reality is I had no idea what I was doing or what I was getting myself into. Um, but it was this just burning passion um, to give a voice to these animals that just suffer in silence. I have always been um, a pretty focused person, um, even when, when I was, was young. So, you know, to me, um, inaction was not an option. You know, I, I started uh, really basic sort of advocacy work when I was about 11 years old, I would give presentations at my school, I would circulate petitions to have classmates sign. Um, you know, I, I just, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that there's anything special or unique about me. Um, I think I was just willing to sort of persevere um, through a lot of the obstacles. And being an, an advocate for animals is certainly uh, been one of the most meaningful and fulfilling uh, things that I could ever imagine doing with my life. And I think that when you are an advocate um, on behalf of those who are, are weak and vulnerable, whether it's, it's animals or children uh, or our environment or, or others, um, it, it can be an act of um, fulfillment. Um, you know, I get so much joy and so much love um, out of being able to uh, to make the world a better place for our fellow creatures. Mm, and, and you do it so beautifully. I think the fact that you do have this very special empathy makes uh, just gives you some added power for your work. Now, I know that you care about a lot of issues in this world. You are a proud gay man, and you talk about your story coming out in the book. So how was that? more difficult than advocating for animals in the beginning. Yeah, I talk, I talk a bit about this in the book, as you said. You know, for, for me, um, I, went, I went vegetarian, as I said, when I was 11, vegan and started Mercy for Animals when I was 15. I didn't come out um, as, as a gay man until I was about 18. So, you know, for me, while I was 
um, advocating on behalf of others uh, for many years. I was really not advocating on behalf of myself. Um, and I think a lot of that is when, when you're advocating on behalf of others or animals um, in this case, when people disagree with you and people say, um, you know, mean or hurtful things, it's not personal. It's not about you. Um, it's about, um, in this case, animals. But for, you know, being, being gay, when people are um, criticizing you or trying to shame you, um, it is personal. Um, it strikes at the core of um, who you are, um, the part of the essence of, of your very being. And, you know, for me, when I was young, growing up in a very rural environment, there was a lot of homophobia. Um, you know, it's something that I experienced within my family, within my community. Um, part of it was just not feeling and, and that it was safe um, to even be out um, as, as a gay individual. Um, so for me, in the beginning, um, it was certainly more difficult uh, to be an advocate for myself and to be out as a gay man than it was to be out as a vegan and an advocate for animals. Now, you know, I am completely proud and comfortable uh, with who I am now, and I certainly am in a safe environment. Um, but that was my that was my journey, and that was the trajectory for my life um, as an advocate for for others before myself. Do you see parallels with LGBT rights and animal rights? Absolutely. Um, you know, to me, if you look at oppression, uh, and and it obviously takes a lot of forms. If you look at racism, sexism, homophobia, or in this case, speciesism, um, it's all really rooted in the same place. It is rooted in this notion of otherness um, and, and that those that are quote-unquote other are oftentimes viewed as less than. You know, women are less important than men. You know, people of color are less important than, than white people. Uh, Non-human animals are less important than human animals. And when we when we do this, um, the group that is that is marginalized, um, their interests uh, are are given um, far less consideration. And you know we have seen throughout history the the ramifications of this type of thinking. So I think that that the core of of this um, you know the sort of um, might makes right uh, is 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 really. Um, a common thread throughout um, oppression, uh, no matter what form it takes. And for me, personally, um, growing up in an environment where I was shamed and guilted and bullied and harassed and assaulted for being gay, I think gave me a much uh, deeper level of empathy for animals that are uh, bullied and harassed and slaughtered um, simply because of who they are. You know, we, in our society, um, you know, we give certain considerations to dogs and cats, for example. We give them greater protection under the law to, to prevent certain acts of cruelty than we do to animals that are deemed food animals, cows, pigs, and chickens. The reality is that there's no difference uh, between these animals other than our perception of them and the ones that we choose to value and those that we don't. Um, and I think for me, that was true uh, being a gay man. I was told that my love was not 
equal or as worthy as that of my heterosexual sister. Um, you know, it wasn't recognized in the same way. I didn't have the same legal benefits or protection. So I think that individuals that are marginalized for who, for, for, for who they are, um, can oftentimes relate to and sympathize with, um, other individuals, um, that are abused or exploited for, for who they are. Um, and in this case, animals. You used the term um, assaulted uh, a moment ago, and I know that you tell the story in the book, and you had a very powerful piece in the Huffington Post a day or two ago about a physical assault that you experienced. And I think some people after that would be tempted to shift their emphasis. I've had people just lately say, oh, the world is, is in such a mess that I feel guilty that I'm only working for animals. And my thought is it doesn't matter who you're working for as long as you're working. <laughs> it all goes into the pot. So d- tell us a little bit about that. H- how does working for animals benefit everybody? Yeah, well, you know, yeah. as I said, I think that all of these, quote, you know, different issues are, in fact, very much the same. Um, I think that there's a common thread. And, you know, for me, veganism, while it is certainly about preventing harm and preventing cruelty to animals, it is just as much about love. And I think that that, that, that living a, a vegan lifestyle is really the ultimate expression of living a heart-centered life that is based on love. Um, you know, we can... Um, you know, reflect these really deeply held values of, of nonviolence every time that we eat. Um, that is incredibly powerful. And, you know, I, I think when we are able to extend our circle of compassion to include animals, everyone benefits from that. You know, we talk about the sort of ethical evolution of our species and our society first beyond you know, tribe and then community and, and then, um, you know, race and religion and nation, you know, now we're, 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 we're pushing that boundary to include animals. And I think every time that that ethical consideration, that ripple grows, um, all of us benefit from that. Um, you know, if we can be kind to chickens and pigs, certainly um, we can and we'll be kind to each other. So I think, you know, how we treat animals says a lot about who we are as people, what's important to us, and it says a lot about our own humanity. Um, you know, I, while, while working on behalf of animals is my primary focus, I, you know, also do work um, in my everyday life to support the LGBT movement, the environmental movement, and the women's uh, movement. So I, I don't think that it, that it has to be an all or nothing, but I agree with you. Um, if everyone um, just took actions large and small, um, whether it be for animals or for the environment or for each other, um, we'd live in a, a much more compassionate and loving um, culture. We would indeed, and it is more so because of the work that you do. I want to ask a question that actually came in online from someone who said, what is Mercy for Animals' actual philosophy regarding animal rights. 
And uh, that was all it said. I don't know anything beyond <laughs> that, but just take it from there. What's your philosophy? You know, our philosophy really at the end of the day is that we should leave animals alone um, and that we should make the most compassionate choices that we can. And in practice, what that means is is a vegan diet. Um, but we operate in a world that is not black and white um, in terms of thinking. So there's a lot of operating in this, this gray zone, which is why Mercy for Animals, well, we do a lot of work to advocate um, and promote and inspire people to, to move towards a vegan diet. We also do um, work to provide relief to the suffering of animals that are right here, right now, that are unfortunate enough to be born into factory farms. You know, we do view it as a moral um, obligation to, uh, to provide relief to, to the animals that are here right now as we are um, moving towards uh, a world where, where we're not using animals at all. Bless you. You, you can be my philosopher. I like that a lot. <laughs> so I know that MFA is known a lot for undercover investigations. So tell us a little bit about that. What's the life of an undercover investigator like? Yeah. You know, this is one of the things that I'm most proud of um, in the book, uh, Mercy for Animals, is because it, it does give a really deep dive into um, the life of these investigators. And I think in many ways, it's really the first book to do this um, in this way. I think that these investigators are the unsung heroes uh, of the animal protection movement. I think they're the hidden heroes of this movement. They, they necessarily operate in the shadows um, to do this work, and they, they do it without people knowing who they are. Um, and they do it, again, out of love um, and out of courage um, and out of a belief that we can and we should do better. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it is very difficult work, um, right. not only physically demanding. You know, working in a slaughterhouse, for example, is one of the most dangerous jobs in the country. Um, it, working on a factory farm is physically demanding. You know, you're, you're shoveling manure all day. It is, it is dangerous work. But it's also emotionally uh, damaging uh, and traumatizing. And I talk in the book about um, perpetration-induced traumatic stress, a form of PTSD, which um, many investigators suffer from, but also workers inside of factory farms and slaughterhouses themselves um, suffer from this PTSD. And it is essentially people that are put in positions to carry out um, acts that they otherwise wouldn't do in good conscience. So, you know, slaughterhouse workers slitting the throats of animals or um, locking animals in cages or castrating them um, without pain relief. These are traumatizing practices for, for most people. Um, and I also talk in the book about um, this study that was done by psychologists looking at the Sinclair effect, a theory that was put out over 100 years ago by Upton Sinclair that says that um, Violent crime rates are higher in communities where slaughterhouses are based, um, with a lot of the workers um, becoming desensitized to violence uh, and engaged in self-medication behavior, um, excessive drinking, alcohol abuse, domestic violence going through the roots, and even um, homicides being carried out in ways that are um, in line with how the animals are slaughtered inside of these slaughterhouses. So, you know, our investigators really do... Um, 
put their hearts on the line as well as their safety on the line um, when they when they do these cases. And we do everything that we can to provide counseling and emotional support for them. Um, but but the trauma of this work can uh, last many years uh, after an investigator has. Uh, left the facility, and you know it's heartbreaking for them too because they they will meet animals inside of of these factory farms. Um, they will you know look into their eyes, and they'll know that they can't open the cage door for these animals right now. Um, but they know that the work that they're doing is helping to pave the way for policy changes, for laws to be enacted, and of course, most importantly for consumers to really ask themselves if, if these are conditions that they find acceptable or not. Um, mm. It's because of these investigators that we're seeing some of the, the big important changes that we're seeing today. Oh, I don't know how they do it. I spent one day in a slaughterhouse, and I don't even know how I did that. Mm. And yet, once you've been there, you can talk about it with the gravitas that that you never could before and i also think that when you've really seen what goes on just as a dilettante really as i was with one day and these people are there for three six months that's when you get it that we really have to work on both levels it's not just waiting for the great good day when everybody wakes up vegan it's also doing something about these these beautiful beings that are trapped in the system now and I do know that people argue about this, and they say that if you make the cages bigger, then everybody will just say, that's okay, I don't have to be vegan. How do you respond to that? Yeah, well, you know, I think that's, that's not what the, the data shows, you know. The, the data shows that actually in countries where there are stronger animal welfare laws, uh, where there are more... Um, corporate commitments to cage-free, uh, the number of vegetarians and vegans in those areas are typically much higher, which um, actually shows that, that these changes um, put animal welfare on a higher level, that they get people thinking about um, the lives of, of, of these animals to begin with and start to understand that these animals are not machines. They, they have needs and they have interests that should be protected. Um, I think that's number one. I think the, the flip side to this argument, which I find, you know, very disturbing, is that it really is putting these individual animals with their feelings in a place of just being an argument. Um, and if you, if you counter that, it's, well, does that mean if we torture animals more, if we put them in smaller cages, if we slit their throats while all of them are conscious, that people will feel worse? about it and will therefore be more likely to go vegan. I think a few people that use that argument would say that the counter to it, which is make it worse and people feel worse about um, eating meat, would make any sense. So I think that the same is, is true here. Um, I think it's a, a speciesist view to not do what we can to provide real relief to the animals that are suffering now. And I talk in the book about after being assaulted, where my face was shattered in seven places and I had multiple facial surgeries, that that being in that amount of physical pain um, really sort of put back into focus for me um, how real suffering is. And I think that animal advocates at times can can lose sight of, of how real this is um, and how urgent this is. 
and that um, if we can if we can provide relief to these animals, if we can stop them from being slaughtered while they're conscious or being mutilated while they're conscious or even having basic freedom of movement, that is meaningful to those animals. Um, it's not the end game, and we should never stop there, and we should be very clear when we are communicating with people and the public about what these changes do and do not mean. Um, but, but I think that, um, you know, we are seeing um, major progress um, on these mm-hmm. issues, and I think it's really sensitizing people. Yes. Oh, thank goodness. So let's, Nathan, uh, take a little look at the legalities at this moment. What is the legal situation facing farmed animals in this country right now? Yeah, so on the federal level, um, there still is not a single federal law to provide protection to animals during their lives on factory farms. There are two federal laws that do uh, relate to farm animals. One is the 28-hour law, which is regarding transport, so literally just the last day or so of the animal's life. And then the, quote, Humane Methods of Slaughter Act, um, end quote, which is supposed to render animals, uh, ensure that animals are rendered unconscious before their throats are slit. Now, the loophole here is enormous, which is that the USDA interprets the term livestock to not include birds or fish for that matter. So well over 99% of the animals that are used for food don't even have this um, meager protection um, at, at slaughter. So again, it, it, if you're looking at a chart um, with the number of animals used, this protection applies to less than 1% of them. So then you look at the state level. Um, all 50 states have anti-cruelty laws. Um, but the problem is most of these anti-cruelty laws um, specifically exclude, quote-unquote, standard agricultural practice. Now, as you know, most vegans know, standard agricultural practice includes cramming animals in cages where they can't even turn around, cutting the beaks off of birds without pain relief, castrating piglets, cutting the tails off of, of cows. These are all standard practice, and therefore they're exempt from this prosecution. It's essentially handing over the power to the industries that use these animals to determine what is and isn't acceptable. And of course, when that is the case, they're always going to choose the practices that are um, the cheapest and the most efficient for them, not the ones that are going to um, cause the least suffering to animals. Now, there, there, is, there are good things that are happening on a state level, however. Um, most of this uh, change is being driven uh, through ballot initiatives. Uh, we're now starting to see more and more states ban specific confinement practices like keeping uh, hens in, in battery cages, uh, mother pigs in, in gestation crates, and, and calves in veal crates. Um, and just this, this last year, we saw Massachusetts not only ban um, these practices, but also ban the sale of meat, dairy, and eggs from animals that were kept in, in these, um, these cruel enclosures. So that's where we're starting to see some real change. The, the, the challenge is that only about half of the states in this country have a ballot initiative process. Um, and many of the largest agriculture states, like Iowa, for example, do not have a ballot initiative process, and their state legislatures are completely in the pocket of the agriculture industry, and they are 
more interested in passing ag-gag laws to prevent investigations than they are passing anything that would provide relief to the animals there. And that's why these um, corporate campaigns to, to push big players in the industry, like the McDonald's and Walmarts of the world, away from confinement of animals is really one of the only hopes that we have to provide some of that relief to these animals that are suffering right here, right now on factory farms. Well, thank you for that. I, I think that uh, really helps people understand what's going on and also understand that when organizations are working with Walmart and so forth, it's not to say, okay, everybody eat more meat. This is the good kind. It's really to work with what you've got to work with and and do some good there. So thank you. Thank you for so much, Nathan. I could talk to you all day. Now, the book is Mercy for Animals, One Man's Quest to Inspire Compassion and Improve the Lives of Farm Animals. You may be the youngest person I know to have written a memoir, Nathan, <laughs> but you've lived many lives, and I think you've got a few more memoirs in you in the future. So just now in our last few minutes, I know that you are way excited about clean meat, cellular agriculture. You talk about it in the book. Mm-hmm. You talk about it in your talks. You're a co-founder of New Crop Capital that invests in clean meat. So tell us why we should be excited and happy. Yeah, well, I believe that that clean meat really is one of the best opportunities that we have to end factory farming and end animal agriculture in our lifetime. Um, you know, I talk in... in and, and what filial agriculture is, or clean meat, is taking harmlessly taking a, a biopsy from an animal and using a stem cell to grow, in this case, muscle um, cells um, in a suitable medium, in a bioreactor, essentially, um, brewing it as you would, essentially, um, beer. And um, you get real meat from animals that does not require the animals um, to be raised, so there's no slaughter, there's no cruelty, and it's far better for food safety. And early estimates say that it takes about 90% less uh, water, energy, and resources. So I'm really excited about this. I talk in the book about Uma Valetti, who is a cardiologist, um, saving lives in hospitals, saw this technology of, of growing tissues, saw that this could completely change our food industry, left his career to start Memphis Meats, which is one of the premier um, clean meat companies. It just got huge investments from from Cargill, a huge meat company, which I think is very um, encouraging, from Bill Gates, from um, from Richard Branson, Jack and Susie Welch, um, just really influential folks. Um, so, so I'm really excited about it. And, and Uma talks about this being the second domestication, the domestication of the cell. And, of course, the first domestication of animals being about 10,000 years ago during the Neolithic period. And it was this domestication that really started humans living in the societies that we know today. So I think this is a really crucial point in um, human progress and will dramatically shift um, the way that we uh, uh, raise our food. And um, I think it's a reflection of not only our advances in technology, but also, also our ethical and moral advances as well. Oh, that is exciting. I love ending on a positive note. Nathan, thank you so much. Thank you for founding Mercy for Animals, for writing this book and for all you're going to do in the decades to come. It makes my heart swell up (laughs) in a very good way. So thank you so much for, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to thank you for, for everything that, that you do. Um, you are an inspiration to me and so many others, and um, it's been a real honor to, to join you today. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful. So everybody, tell your friends. We're on iTunes. We're all over the place. Thanks to Nathan Runkle and to Vegan Richa for spending time with us today and to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world, for recognizing that a vegan lifestyle is part of that awakening. And to everyone who listened, thank you. God bless. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Did you know you can reach Unity's 24-7 prayer ministry online? You don't even have to give your name to know the prayers have begun for you or those you love. Someone has been praying around the clock at Silent Unity since 1890, and every request is taken into prayer for 30 days. Why not let us pray with you, too? To submit your prayer request to Silent Unity online, go to unity.org and click on prayer or call 1-800-NOW-PRAY. Somewhere, tucked away in the Unity Library archives in Unity Village, Missouri, you can find a secret treasure. They are the scripts from Unity co-founder Charles Fillmore's early days on broadcast radio. The teachings of Unity's founders, almost a hundred years old. Now, for the first time in history, you can hear them through the power of the Internet. Join Bob Brock every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, For Unity Classic Radio, words from our past. Discover the wisdom of Charles Fillmore's talks and of other Unity Radio speakers read on the air again. Call in your comments and questions as Bob and his special guests revisit Unity Radio talks of the past, along with historical background from the early days of the Unity movement. That's Unity Classic Radio, words from our past, every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, Right here on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.